Well, if you live in a state like Pennsylvania, then there's something like a one in a million chance that your vote could swing the outcome of the election. So if it's one in a million, one in two million, I like to think about that as a lottery ticket, which has a small chance of winning. But if you win, you could change the world. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I'd recently spoken with the chief scientist at Catalyst, and we talked about a political science paper that was influential to both of our thinking about elections. It was called, Why Are Presidential Campaign Polls So Variable If Votes Are So Predictable? This episode features one of the co-authors of that paper, professor of both statistics and politics at Columbia University, Andrew Gelman. Andrew and I talked about how a math whiz ends up specializing in statistics and why he sometimes uses those tools to tackle aspects of American politics, from the rationality of voting to redistricting to the difference between how rich and poor people vote. Andrew is an interesting guy, and we had a good conversation. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Professor Andrew Gelman of Columbia University. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Hi, Andrew. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? I'm Andrew Gelman, and I teach statistics and political science at Columbia University. What was your path to studying statistics and political science? I was always good at math when I was a kid. And then when I was in high school, I did math team and math Olympiad training program. And I learned that there are people better than me at it. I didn't really understand at the time about applied math. And we just kind of had the idea that math is this unidimensional thing. And that at any time, any time there are people like Cauchy who prove the theorems and then other mathematicians who I guess like their role is to come up with failed ideas that get superseded. I just didn't want to be one of those people. I was a physics major in college. I took probability and statistics because they were offered at night and they actually happened to fit my schedule. I liked the subjects. And so I ended up taking some statistics classes and going to grad school in statistics. You were at MIT as an undergrad, right? Yeah, I was an MIT undergrad. MIT did not have a statistics department. So I took a couple of classes at Harvard and there was a class from Don Rubin who became my advisor. And that was just a very compelling class. And it was very interesting, like applied statistics. I think now it's everybody knows about statistics and data analytics as interesting, but back then, not so much. I loved physics, but I did not feel that I was very good in physics. I don't think I had a good understanding. I could only do physics well because I could do the math. That was how I ended up doing statistics. Political science at MIT, you have to have a humanities minor. And I minored in political science because I think politics is really important and interesting. And then I ended up meeting various collaborators along the way who were doing political science research, and I work with them on different projects. I guess I'm primarily a statistician. I was in the PhD program at MIT in political science and uh, did everything but write a dissertation. When you were back in 
undergrad and grad school, starting to think about politics in that way, who was it that you, whose work you thought was good or useful or interesting? I had uniformly excellent experiences in the political science program. I was a, a very shy MIT undergraduate, and so I did not talk to the other kids in the classes, even though I'm sure they were very interesting. So my interactions were very much with the instructors. Um, so the first class I took was from Suzanne Berger, and she was a you know professor, well-known professor, and this was a class on revolution and the theory of politics. And we read Locke, Hobbes, Marx, Rousseau, just amazing. I mean, just very eye-opening, all these different perspectives. I came into it with a pretty naive view of what politics was like based on reading the newspaper and occasional history books. I think just seeing that people had tried to figure things out and different people who tried to figure things out came to different conclusions like Locke and Hobbes, was very important to me. Then I took a class from Louis Menand. I don't remember the title, but we basically went through Supreme Court decisions in American history. And he was just an amazing teacher. He, it was this my second favorite class of all of MIT. And just, an, I mean, my favorite class was a legendary mechanical engineering class where everybody in the class builds a machine at the, the machine. So that, that was the best ever. But Manan's class was number two. There was a, a hidden message in the class, or I believe the latent message in the class, even though he never said it, which was that eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. And I came into that class thinking the U.S. Constitution was a kind of clockwork mechanism through its checks and balances gave us our liberty. And it became clear after that class that that the Constitution is a tool and liberty is really um, attained because people work very hard to get there. Um, that was an amazing class. Then I took a, a graduate class offered by Walter Dean Burnham, which was just amazing. The guy was like a wizard. So he would just make graphs and like he had all sorts of data at his fingertips. Um, that was completely different because it was an empirical class. It was a graduate class. I don't even remember what I did my project for the class on, but I just remember it was very stunning. Just the idea that you could study politics in this way. Again, I think everybody knows about this now, like the New York Times has data graphics, but at the time, it was really amazing. Um, also, it was a lot of fun because he would refer to all these things I never heard of, right? So he'd just talk about these things. And so it was like the kind of movie where all the characters have a backstory, right? Like, like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? You got this feeling that there's a lot more there that you haven't even seen. And then I did a thesis so I was a physics major, had to do a thesis. So when I was a junior, I went to a bunch of labs and asked if I could work in their labs. And they said, come back to us when you're ready to do a senior thesis. When I was a senior, I went to the labs and said, could I do my thesis? And they said, no, we only take people who work with us as juniors. <laughs> so I, MIT had a booklet of all the, what all the faculty worked on. There's a requirement of the undergraduate thesis, but it didn't have to be in physics. Like, because people major in something and they might lose interest. So I looked at all the faculty and there was faculty member in political science and he did game theory. And that sounded really cool, like math. So I went to this guy, uh, Hayward Alker, and I said, I'd, I see your list as someone who advised undergraduate theses. So he gives me this book. He says, oh, there's this book. Uh, you should read. It's by Axelrod, Evolution of Cooperation. Read it and come back. So I read it. It was all about this game theory stuff. Really interesting. So I came back with like three pages of ideas. Like we're going to do like, let's change the rules of the game and do this simulation, do this. And he says, well, there's a chapter in that book. He talks about World War One. Like, take a look at that. Like, so I look at that and I come back like, oh, we can do this. He says, you know, he talks about prisoner's dilemma but like what about like coordination game like, what's a coordination so read this and this read this. and that was all based on a secondary source which was a book by a historian named tony ashworth which and it was about what was called the live and let live system 
of trench warfare in the 1914 to 1918 on the Western Front. It happened that I was visiting Cornell because they'd accepted me into their physics PhD program. And this book wasn't at the MIT library, but they had it at the Cornell library. So while I was at Cornell, I went to the library and photocopied the book. And then I read the book and then I went back back and forth. And I ended up doing a thesis where I basically said I thought Axelrod was wrong. His application of game theory to World War I trench warfare, I, I think was naive, actually. It, it turns out like, other people have said this too. So the political scientist Joanne Gawa at Princeton actually wrote about this around 1986 in, in a book review. Um, I didn't know about this at the time. I learned about this because long time later, somebody pointed this out to me. So anyway, so I did this thesis and it, it was really interesting. And I really like how Alkert like, did not let me off the hook. Like he was, I would have been happy to do some sort of game theory thing. And he wanted me to actually figure something out and, so I wrote it up and it was my thesis. And then a long time later, I thought, this is pretty important. I want to publish it. So I tried to send it to some journal. And this was when I was already a, a professor at Columbia. And it, the journal didn't like it. The reviewers had some comments. So I didn't really bother with it. And then I put it in as a chapter in a book I wrote. So I wrote a book about quantitative, a quantitative tour of the social sciences. So I put it there. And then somebody saw it and emailed me and said, could they publish it in their journal? So then it ended up getting published many years later. But I was just very lucky. I, I took three amazing classes and had this amazing research experience. There's no reason to expect that would have happened. I don't think that's like the typical experience of a political science minor at MIT. Just super lucky. So that's the story of that. It sounds like you had different options for things to do for graduate school. Why did you choose to go to Harvard and study what you studied? Oh, uh, well, just I, I was a physics major and I, I did very well. I, I got into top physics programs. Then I applied to some statistics programs and got into them too. And it was just a tough decision. And physics is kind of deeper and more important in some way. But I thought I could make more contributions in statistics because it was, it was more suited to me. I didn't want to go to grad school even, but then one of my professors told me that if you get a PhD, you can do what you want. <laughs> so, Yeah, got it. Uh, tell me about grad school uh, in statistics, and, and, but mainly about how that tied into your study of politics. Well, I don't think it tied in so much except the statistical methods that we learned were of general relevance and so I happen to have a friend uh, who in graduate school, uh, Steve Ansalbeher, who was... A mutual friend of ours, yeah. Okay, so he, we took some classes together my first year. And so I would hang, I spent a lot of time hanging out in the political science department because he was a political science PhD student. So uh, we would go to the seminars together and some of the topics were interesting. And so I guess it was in some way through him Although we have not ourselves done a huge amount of collaboration over the years, but like we're aware of each other's work. Well, I read a paper with you and Gary King about why are campaigns so, so variable if you can predict elections so well, presidential elections. And I'm curious about that particular article because it was noteworthy to me. And it was noteworthy to Yair, who I recently spoke to. It's funny because, like, in some ways, like, we've not all, I mean, some of that paper is somewhat obsolete, actually, because campaign polls aren't variable anymore. So we wrote this paper. Who, whose idea was it? How did it? Oh, it was our joint, our joint idea. We did, we did all our work together. It wasn't like one person wrote the words and one person wrote the music or anything like that. We were just collaborated. We were working on a project relating to redistricting. So this was in, in 1988 and I was in graduate school. We were working on some stuff that later got published on effects of incumbency and in elections and effects of redistricting. Maybe some of that's kind of obsolete too, because redistricting is like obviously a lot more dangerous than than it used to be but when we were doing that we were following the election and i remember that michael dukakis was leading by a lot 
And I remember Gary saying, well, don't take it so seriously. And I asked why. And he said, oh, this guy, Stephen Rosenstone, this political scientist, wrote a book saying you can forecast elections based on the economy and political moderation. And he said that neither Dukakis nor Bush is a politically extreme candidate, and the economy is going well for the incumbent party. And so he thought he, Rosenstone would say, like, don't take the polls seriously that Bush is favored. You know, then, of course, it happened that Bush won the election. So we, we talked about it a lot because I was working with Gary in his office like every day. This wasn't my PhD thesis research. It was just stuff that I was doing for fun. But we were talking all the time. So, of course, we started talking about this, that we together asked why do the polls vary so much. And then Gary said, well, this is the paper we should write. And, and I said, I don't know the answer. And he said, no, the, the question's more important than the answer. Like, there's a lot of answers. Like, you know, there's more than one answer per question. But, like, so questions are more valuable than answers. They're more scarce, right? So we had this good question, so don't let it go. So we wrote a paper where we pretty much tried to track everything down. And it took a lot of work. I mean, we got got data, raw data from 60 different polls. Um, I hired somebody to, to code all the surveys and put them in a common, like common coding. I think the amount of effort it took to hire somebody, maybe it would have been easier to you know, do it myself, right? But anyway, did that, it took years. In 1992, we were still working on it. And at that point, we said, well, we should really demonstrate that you can forecast the election. So I fit a forecasting model and based on Rosenstone's model, but also combining stuff that James Campbell had done at the state level. The James Campbell I've never met, but I have kind of warm feelings about him as a political scientist because he's a conservative. There aren't that many conservative academic political scientists. And of course, being a conservative in 1992 was meant something different than what being a conservative might mean today. And I, I don't know the guy at all, but I've had pleasant exchanges with him over the years. So he had done a state-level forecast, but it didn't fully account for like the multi-level structure of the data. So it fit a multi-level model. Well, back then you couldn't just fit it in Stan, right? So it was like hard work, but we did this. I don't think the model is so perfect, it's, but we created maps and it was funny because I I made we got forca probabilistic forecasts. These were not based on the polls. They're only based on the fundamentals because that was the point of the of the paper. So you look at the forecast and we could tell it was wrong even before the election. It, it gave Bill Clinton too big a chance of winning states like Texas because he's a southerner and it gave him a southern advantage. So we knew it wasn't quite right, but that's actually interesting too. If you have something where you know it's wrong, that gives you some insight. Anyway, I made this talk where I, we computed all these fun things like the probability that Electoral College would be tied, the probability each candidate would win, the probability of a decisive vote in any state, like lots of stuff which later became spin-off papers. Nobody cared that much. Like, I, I guess in retrospect, maybe we could have tried like a get an op-ed or something. I don't know. Like nowadays, people all want to know these things, right? But like, I would go around telling people the probability of the electoral college would be a tie, and like, just people had no sense of it. Like, people didn't even realize the electoral college could be a tie. I mean, obviously, they knew at some level, but like, people were not really thinking about things in a betting frame of mind the way they are now. It was just such a different era. Anyway, but after shortly after that, we finished the paper, but we did that forecast. That forecast is actually in the paper because we we thought we should really do our own forecast. And and I I had so much fun doing it, I said to Gary, should we keep doing it? He said, no. And I said, why not? He said, because if you do a forecasting, you're wrong. You look really bad. Like if your reputation you know, there's an asymmetric effect on your reputation. So don't be a forecaster unless you got nothing else going for you. Okay. I've seen some people have damage to their reputations from forecasting. Oh, yeah, arguably me even. I, I don't know, but it's... I wasn't thinking about, you know, but, I was but, thinking about 538 or, you know, things like that well, down the road. Yeah, I, I have a big respect for 538 in the sense that is what they do. Yes. So, like, they're not... 
It's not the core thing yet. It's valuable that they do that. Like it is, that is, yeah, forecasting is their core thing. And so they do it and they make mistakes. And like Johnny Carson, he, he was the master of the safe. He had great jokes, but he was really great when he had the, when he messed up, he could, he was the best of the savers. And similarly with 538, they often like show themselves at their best when they mess up because then they try to talk about what went wrong. Not always, but just, just to, to kind of complete that conversation about that particular paper, what, what would you say is the answer? What did you say in the paper was the answer and what, and would your answer to that be different now? Well, what we said was the answer, it was kind of like a physics kind of thing. I think the natural way of doing it is you say, well, where are the poles in April and how come they're changing, right? So there's a kind of random walk model. Uh, so like, how come Dukakis was ahead? How come he lost? What happened? But think about in a time-reversed way. Think of the election outcome as the baseline and then go backwards in time. So the real question is not why did George H.W. Bush win the election with 54% of the two-party vote, right? It's why, given that he was probably going to end up there and he did end up there, why was it that he wasn't ahead earlier? So in the answer to 1988, our answer was like a lot of people thought Dukakis was kind of conservative or moderate. Like he, he beat Jesse Jackson in the primary elections. Uh, this was an era before it was, there wasn't so much political polarization. So a lot more voters were open to voting for either side. So the answer to why the opinion polls vary so much is that the early polls were not particularly anchored anywhere reasonable. They could have kind of been anything. I mean, they were more extreme. Jimmy Carter was was like, at one point, he had 65% of the two-party support in the polls. And like they say, he was leading by 30 points. So that's a kind of a weird thing. I'd rather say 65%. He ended up getting like 50.5%, right? So what happened was or 51%. Voters were very fluid. And the expression that people had months before the election was not firm or particularly meaningful. Now, people were polarized enough even in 1976 that you could pretty much predict how much people are going to vote, but they hadn't reached the stage of polarization where you could predict how people would respond to surveys months ahead of time. Now we've reached, as I said, a new level of polarization where people are polarized not only in election day, but months ahead of time. What was your path to being a professor of two subjects, statistics and political science at Columbia? How did that happen? Oh, I was a professor of statistics and I was advising political science students who had sometimes taken my classes. And so the political science department approached me and said, would you like to be 50-50 and you can you know, be part of the department? So I said, sure, why not? So that's it. But how did you end up at Columbia? What was the path from grad school to there? Oh, well, I worked at the University of California before that. So they were like said to have the best statistics department in the world. And so I got my PhD and, and living in Berkeley, it seemed very pleasant. Like, it's a very nice place to live. So it was kind of a no brainer to take the job offer that that was in a very nice place to live. That was the best department in the world. Uh, so I was there for a few years. I didn't fit in very well with the department. I remember giving a talk, actually the talk that I just referred to about the probabilities. It was this fun talk I gave in October 1992. And afterward, one of my colleagues, one of my colleagues who liked me said, said like, oh, I, you know, thanks for giving the talk. I, I didn't realize how little there was to this political science stuff that you did. And I was wow. like, no, it's not. I was giving a fun talk. Like, oh, it was so frustrating. And so, like, I, I kind of got a lot of disrespect, although that wasn't enough to make me not want to stay there. But then the department had to decide whether to promote me. And, and like, more than half of them didn't want to promote me. And, and so uh, to be go through promotion, it was going to be very complicated. They were having, like, meetings at the university level and committees and I wasn't sure I would 
be there anymore. I wasn't sure that my job would be there. So I interviewed for other jobs. I interviewed for several jobs and uh, Columbia was one of the two places that made me offer. But given I had another option, it wasn't so appealing to be at a place where my colleagues didn't want me around. So I went to Columbia. It's nice here. So <laughs> yeah. So I've noticed that you publish a bunch of stuff in statistics. You also have you know, a book about voting, red state, blue state. You also contribute to the monkey cage and you have your own blog. Tell me about that mix of intellectual work that you're engaged in. What do you like? What do you not like? And why are you choosing to do the things that you do? You know, I'll say I feel bad about the red state, blue state book in terms of my acknowledgments of my co-authors because it, so I wrote that with four former Columbia students. We had a idea that this would become very popular. Like it was shortly after that Freakonomics book had come out. I thought, well, lots of people are interested in politics. And so this will like be really big. I put a lot of effort into writing it, like making it very readable. And my co-authors put in a lot of work. And the publisher said, well, you shouldn't really have a book with five authors. So I said, well, we're all authors. So we compromised. So on the title page, it has all five of us listed, but on the cover, it's just my name. I definitely did most of the work. Like if if anyone's going to be listed as a sole author, it should be me. But there was really no reason for that. It's they did a lot of work too, and it was a collaborative project. Just because there's a leader in a collaborative project, the other people are important too. And I feel like uh, you know, I I think my collaborators agreed to it, but I think we are. I was kind of greedy, right? Like I wanted, it's not that I wanted all the credit. I, I would have been completely happy to have a book with five authors be a bestseller. We split the royalties of which there were very little five ways evenly. But I think like while the publisher said it won't look good to have five authors. So I thought, well, and you were the professor and they were students. Yeah. So that's why I shouldn't have, I mean, you should bend over backward, you know, to, to, to share the credit. And it was a kind of greed again, not greed for credit on my sense, but like greed for the book to be successful and willing to compromise. And, and that was, that was not good. So I feel a little bad about that since you brought it up. What's the main point of that book? <laughs> the main point of that book is to try to understand the difference between how richer and poor people vote. I guess we say rich and poor, but it would be people in the upper third or lower third in income. So I, I think that it, there is a kind of naive take on it, which is, well, rich people vote for the Republicans and poor people vote for the Democrats because the Democrats are the party of the people. And the, well, a lot of, you know, it's not true. A lot of lower income people vote for Republicans. And then the next naive view is to say, oh, rich people vote for the Democrats and poor people vote for the Republicans. And there's this idea that Democrats are people like rich celebrities like Oprah and Republicans are, are some kind of low-income dirt farmer somewhere. And, well, that's not right either. Actually, the, there is a kind of positive correlation between income and Republican voting. So the kind of rich people who vote for Democrats are kind of different than the kind of rich people who vote for Republicans. And you can look at it based on different things, like what state people live in or their religious attendance you can look at why people vote the way they do, like what issues are important to people, and you see differences between rich and poor people, and you can break it down by white people. And as you can see, I never like got the whole elevator pitch part like nailed down. <laughs> that that's what it's about. You can see you can see why it didn't become a big bestseller because it's it's like there's a lot in there actually. The only thing that really annoyed me was when people would review it and say, "Well, the book's okay, but you could just read the article. The article's free online because the article's like chapter one and two of the book." And the insight that I liked the most, I just don't know that people really picked up on. But the insight I really liked the most was that. The difference between how rich people and poor people vote was like in states like New York and California and Maryland and Virginia, there is very little difference between how rich and poor voted. But in other parts of the country, rich people were much more conservative than poor people. And so 
the thing that I thought was the most fascinating insight was that where the news media lived, the rich-poor gap was just different among journalists and where journalists lived than in the general population. So journalists, in trying to understand America, were, I think, too much focused on what it was like where they lived. And I really like that particular insight, and I, I think that kind of got a little bit buried in, in all the, the numbers. But that was the thing that motivated me to write the book. It's very data analysis-based, but if you had the chance to update it, would do you think you would find that a lot of the insights hold up, or do you think things have changed a lot? I think some of the insights hold up, but some have changed. I've written about this. I've, I've published a couple of papers on it since. I mean, they've been in kind of fairly obscure places because it just takes less effort to publish in obscure places. Um, and one of my favorite papers is the 20th century reversal, which is how the democratic areas became Republican and vice versa. And I published that in an obscure journal too. It's full of graphs. I, I love it. Just uh, who it just takes too much effort to publish in a top journal sometimes. But anyway, things have changed. I think a lot of things are the same. I think it's still true that the things that motivate richer voters are different than the things that motivate poorer voters. I think that it's still true that like the culture war is still happening more on the upper income side than the lower income side. I haven't looked into this in detail, but even those, you know, those people who stormed the U.S. Capitol, right? Like, like they were not like low income people, like they felt left out, which is kind of a different thing. So I think these complexities are still there. The details have changed a lot. Age and education have both become much stronger predictors of how people vote than they were in 2004 and 2008, which were the elections that we based the book on. And it's huge differences now. And it, it just did not, I think the age thing, young people are much more liberal than older people. And you kind of expect that, but it didn't used to be the case. Like it seems so natural, but if you go back 20 years ago, it wasn't like that. And then the more educated people being more liberal again has, is that's new. It didn't used to be that way. And so education interacts with income in complicated ways. It's not bad sometimes to think in terms of like some stereotypes of occupations, like doctors and lawyers used to be conservative and now they're liberal. Nurses and social workers can have advanced degrees and, and teachers, nurses and social workers, right? They're super liberal. Certain conservative groups might have high income, but lower education. Like a lot of these were trends that were happening back then. And like some of the stuff that I was arguing was kind of wrong back in 2008 has kind of become true in the meantime. So it would have to be changed. The things are different. For people who don't know, what is the monkey cage and what has been your role? The monkey cage was a blog that was started by some professors at George Washington University and in the mid-2000s. And at some point, they asked me if I would be a co-blogger. So there were about like six of us who would blog, and we would get guest posts from other people. Then they became a feature on the Washington Post. And so for a while, I continued blogging there. I, I rarely blog there now because they, they kind of don't need me. I mean, they, they get a lot of posts from political scientists. It's become a place where political scientists kind of, where they talk about their research. In the old days, I would post something on the Monkey Cage blog, like, hey, what's up with this? Like, maybe somebody emails me about an election in another country. Like, there's some claim that there's fraud in another country, or, or like, there's like, I have like half-finished research ideas. As you know, in the U.S., the low population areas are overrepresented in Congress, right? You, you've heard about that. Yeah, for like sure. The U.S. Senate, right? And, well, other countries have that too. So you can compare different countries and say, is the U.S. bad compared to other countries? You know, how much malapportionment is there in the U.S. in that way? And how does that compare to like spending between 
different years. So like I could make a graph and they'd say, here's a post. Like it's like a blog post, like it's research. I don't know the answer. Or here's some, here are some graphs we made. There's a guy I know, a sociologist, David Weekleam at University of Connecticut was an excellent blog. I linked to it from my blog. Um, it's called Just the Social Facts, Ma'am. And he has a lot of polling results. And you should interview him. He's He's got a lot to say. Just very fascinating. Definitely punctures illusions of the left and the right. The point is, like, that would be the kind of stuff I might read some of his posts, and then I could post something in the monkey cage saying, look what weaklings we're coming up with. It's changed now. It's less, it's not really a blog in that sense anymore. So it would be much more like somebody does like a completed research paper and then posts saying we've done this research. So if I were to publish there, it would usually be now on the rare occasions I publish, it's like related to some research that I've done. So a place people could go to read about what's happening in political science in a short form. Yeah, it is. It's it's a rare. It's very. It's excellent. It's it's different. It's not bloggy. It's more a bit more boosterish, like a bit more like public relations. But I think political science doesn't have a lot of outlets like that. Like other fields have more of that. Like economics, they have. You know, there's an entire like NPR show which is just pretty much devoted to economics pushing economic stories and so forth. There's not really anything like that in political science. So I think it's great. I'm not, my connection to it is pretty attenuated at this point. You have your own blog though, right? I do. I have a blog that my, my postdoc, Samantha Cook, and I started in 2004. Well, she no longer works with me and that was a long time ago, but we started this blog because I said, if we're going to be emailing each other with ideas, let's blog to each other, and that way other people can see it and participate. And then if we ever run out of material, we could just blog like old papers and stuff. So we haven't run out of material, and that's that's been, been fun. What sort of things would people find if they go to that blog of yours? Um, just sometimes talk about my research or other people's research or – Sometimes just unrelated things like Jamaican beef patties or books that I've read lately. You know, that kind of it's it's kind of bloggy in that way. But uh, like people send me stuff. Like sometimes people will say I read this paper and I don't think it's so good. And then I'll look and I'll think the paper's kind of good. So I'll post something saying somebody sent me this and they said they didn't like it, but I think it's kind of okay. Or recently there was a a book that was being promoted that like seemed like it was missing some things so we discussed that there's some good discussion that happens you must have some pretty strong opinions about sort of the state of social science research generally i've seen things that you've posted about replicability or junk social science how do you think things sit right now generally in terms of how well people are are pursuing social science, particularly in the political area? Yeah, I don't know. I actually had something yesterday about junk social science. It was because I linked to some paper someone had sent me from some politically motivated scholar who was trying to insinuate that maybe Biden hadn't won the election fair and square. And I don't think it was good work. And we discussed to what extent the author was like knew that it was bad work or whether he was innocently just thought it was correct. It's fun. Like in a blog, you can speculate. Sometimes people say I shouldn't speculate, but I think it's okay to speculate if you label it as speculation. So I speculated that he has a strong view that Biden should not be president of the United States. And the point of research like this is to substantiate that view. And so he has data. And so he has enough skills that he can go through data until he can find an argument substantiating his view. And like, once you want to do that, like if I want to substantiate the idea that you're really good at basketball, I just have to like take a thousand of your shots and then make a highlight reel of the best, like six or seven. And it'll make you look like I would look great. Yeah. You'd look very good. Right. (laughs) And so I think the point is like, does this person know that he's doing what I would consider bad research. The purpose of research for him is not to uncover the truth exactly. It's to point out what he already knows. 
And I suspect that he thinks that everybody's like that. So like when he's criticized that he might just think that it's like, well, yeah, everyone, you know, it's like kind of legalistic or adversarial mode of reasoning. And, and I really don't like that. I, I think just the world is more complicated than that. So I don't know. I mean, social science research, it's hard to know. You have a lot of principal agent problems running around because if you're doing sports analytics and you're trying to help your team win, it's pretty clear what your goals are. If your goal is to publish a paper, it's like, what's your goal? Like someone's trying to get tenure or get a job for a student or prove a political point. The connection to the goals are, are indirect. So I guess a lot of problems can arise. You mentioned earlier Stan, which you can model in. That's something that you had a lot to do with. Tell me, what is that exactly? Well, Stan is a short for Stanislav Ulam, who was a mathematician who was one of the inventors of the Monte Carlo method, which is a way of doing mathematical computations using random sampling. And those are algorithms that were originally used in physics and are also now used in statistics to, to do certain calculations. So I guess the short version of that is if you want to fit a model to data, the model that you fit will always have a certain amount of error to it. So like if you're fitting a line through data points, the line won't go through all the points. There's going to be some error. And because there's going to be some error, there's some range of possible solutions, possible fits to your data. There are mathematical algorithms that allow you to express your uncertainty in these solutions. So the goal is not like, if we get back to something like election forecasting, like our election forecasting model we did with The Economist during the past election, we don't come up with a single point forecast of the election. We come up with a, a forecast range or simulated scenarios. STAN is a computer program written in C++ that my colleagues wrote with collaboration from me. I didn't write the code, but I was kind of the original user of the algorithm. So I worked with colleagues who actually knew how to code stuff. And I said, like, I'm trying to solve this kind of problem that I can't otherwise solve. So Bob Carpenter and Matt Hoffman and some other people, they wrote algorithms, they wrote code, they wrote an actual language, a modeling language, which allows me to fit models. And then I can use it, right? It's like, you build yourself a factory and the factory makes ice cream machines and then you can start eating ice cream. Like it really works. And so that's what we use. These things are called probabilistic programming languages and Stan was not the first of them and it's not the last. It's well adapted to a kind of certain kind of models we often fit in statistics. There are other probabilistic programming languages that are more adapted to things like image recognition or speech recognition. They don't use STAN, they use other languages, um, just like computing in general. They're, uh, different languages tend to solve different problems. But STAN's open source, I love it. So, yeah. One of the things I've seen posted is your discussion about the rationality of voting. I think it comes up right before each election. Oh, I'm I, so glad that people read that. That was so important to me. Yeah. Well, there we go. Tell me about what are your thoughts? How do you understand whether it makes sense? None of us has a very good chance of making a difference, of swinging, certainly a presidential election, no matter what state we're in. But, but why does it make sense to vote? Well, if you live in a state like Pennsylvania, then there's something like a one in a million chance that your vote could swing the outcome of the election. Where does that come from? Well, maybe... I mean, this is rough numbers, but like maybe there's a one in 10 chance that Pennsylvania's electoral votes would be decisive. That is without, that the election would be within, I guess it's 20 electoral votes of being tied. And then there's roughly one in 100,000 chance that your vote would be decisive in the state, meaning that like the election could be that close. So like now 
it didn't happen that it was within one vote, but it could, right? If it, roughly speaking, if the election could be anywhere between plus and minus a hundred thousand of being tied, there's roughly one in a hundred thousand, or maybe one in two hundred thousand chance that your that your vote will be decisive. People sometimes like start chipping away at the edges of this argument. Like they'll say, "Oh, well, but if the election were really decided by one vote, they would do a recount." And then if they did a recount, then it wouldn't be one vote anymore, so your vote wouldn't matter. But that's actually not quite right because there has to be some threshold which causes them to make the recount. So you can say, well, okay, what's the probability that your vote is the vote that reaches the thresholds that they need to recount? Like it, it, We wrote about this in our paper, but if you kind of account for the fact that the recount might happen and then you sum over all those possibilities, you pretty much mathematically get back to the same result. So if it's one in a million, one in two million, I like to think about that as a lottery ticket, which has a small chance of winning. But if you win, you could change the world. Your preferred candidate winning the national election won't be worth $2 million to you personally. Like, I mean, unless you're like a contractor can have some government contract, but in that case, you're going to be investing in the election in other ways than by voting, right? For a typical voter, like, yeah, maybe my preferred candidate will improve the economy or reduce my chance of getting fired. But like reducing my chance of getting fired by 5% is not worth $2 million, like again, for, for most people and so forth. On the other hand, Let's suppose that you believe that your preferred candidate winning in terms of peace and prosperity is worth $1,000 to every American on average. Now this, I don't mean that it makes every American happy by $1,000. I mean, like, you know, you think that your candidate will be a better steward of the economy, more likely to keep the country safe, the usual things, to the extent that even people who don't like your candidate will actually benefit. And I think most... Most of us feel that our preferred candidate, whoever that candidate is, we tend to think that he or she would be better for most Americans. Like not not all, but like most, right? If you believe that, then you could say, well, my candidate winning would be like worth equivalent to say $1,000 for every American. And that would be $300 billion. So it's like a lottery it's not expensive to vote. It doesn't take a lot of time. There's a one in two million chance that my vote will make a difference. And that's equivalent to donating a donation of $300 billion to charity. Well, maybe that's worth it. Now, that doesn't explain why I vote in New York State. I vote in New York State just because I feel like I should. So I think a lot of times, this is the so-called civic duty explanation of voting. The thing I gave earlier would be called the instrumental justification for voting. I don't claim that the instrumental justification for voting is the only justification or even the most important justification. I only claim that it exists. If you live in a swing state, voting is not an irrational act. If an election might be close, it's not irrational to vote, um, which is a, a kind of a weak claim. But that that's that's kind of all the claim that I could could possibly make. But yet it is a stronger claim. Like I think the literature was confused on this point. Uh, so Aaron Edlin and Noah Kaplan and I wrote this paper. It was it was kind of Aaron's idea originally, actually, but he didn't have the numbers for it, and so that's we ended up putting it together. Do you follow the use of? analytics, data science, statistics, et cetera, in politics for practitioners, for campaign professionals pretty closely? A little. Uh, not closely, but I, I guess Yair does some of that. And he was my PhD student. So like I, I've talked to him on occasion. It's changed dramatically since the, you know, like the 80s or, or before from your vantage point. How is it changing politics or is it or is it valuable? For many years, I've wanted to write an an article called Politics in the Era of Political Science, in which it talked about how politics has changed because of that. So, like, I remember in 1984, that was the first election when I voted and when I was allowed to vote. Reagan was favored, but I really thought that, like, both candidates had a chance. Like, I think a lot of people did. I think there was not as much of a sense that it was already decided. So I think there's a lot more awareness of which elections are winnable and which elections are not. 
and and a lot more sense of the uncertainty. I'm I'm sure it affects resource allocation. There is a lot of strategic things. I think people just push buttons they didn't push before. That's not about political science, but politics changes. So one thing that's been talked about a lot is the filibuster, right? When I was younger, they did not have headlines like, like, you know, Bill loses 57 to 43, right? Like if it was a filibuster, that was like a big thing. So the rules changed and we know about the redistricting that they're used to be, I I did research on redistricting with Gary King. And when we did our research, we had the sense that redistricting was constrained by the courts and partisan redistricting just wasn't that extreme. Many states had divided government and the ones that didn't have divided government, there were just limits of what the courts would accept. That was like the redistricting gerrymandering button has been pushed in a way that wasn't pushed before. Well, that's not really about political science directly, but it's just that conditions have have changed. Um, I guess, you know, the analytics has made it easier to do more dangerous redistricting. So it might be that back in the 80s, they didn't push it so much because they didn't have the tools available. To they're better at it now. Yeah. They're better at it. But like, I feel like also there are more constraints. What's your current work? in the area of politics. Is there anything that you're currently researching or working on? I recently did a project with Yotam Margalit on penumbras and the the idea like the well about three percent of Americans are are gay, but most Americans have a close family member or friend who is gay. So the penumbra of gay people is is very large. Now about 3% of Americans are Muslims, but most Americans say they don't have a close friend or family who is a Muslim. So it's a much smaller penumbra. So we did a research project a few years ago that just recently got published where we compared different groups like gay people, Muslims, unemployed people, women who have had abortions in the past five years, active duty, military. And we looked at their penumbras and we looked at who was in their penumbras and what were the political attitudes. And there's this idea, I, I think this is actually really, this is really important that like, when we think of minority groups, we tend to think of their political influence as being directly from them. Like they have a certain, how they vote or maybe how they contribute or their, their direct impact. But what about the impact of people who know them? That could be important too. So I think, that was something sort of ties into some areas of survey research, like asking people not just how they plan to vote, but how their friends and family plan to vote. Again, you know, that connects to, you know, sadly, political polarization, which was my specialty with red state, blue state is more important than ever. And that's somehow connected to like how, how people understand other people and who they think whose voices they think are worth listening to and, and so forth. But yeah, I don't really have a lot of research right now, but that was the closest. To- I'm, I'm curious how you view the role of a political scientist in the age of Trump. I mean, I've talked to some... The age of Trump is over, no? Is no, it not, not over yet. Oh, not okay. entirely over, unfortunately, okay. from my viewpoint. Still shaping a lot of our discourse and decisions, particularly in the Republican Party, but everywhere. So, I mean, how do you view your job differently perhaps as a teacher as a student of politics in a time where i mean you said early on in this conversation something about eternal vigilance around the constitution right and the constitution feels more vulnerable than it did 20 years ago what do you think i don't know i mean i mean first i, I don't really feel that i'm particularly qualified to answer that like sure as a as a kind of citizen like I'm scared about what I read in the newspapers too. I mean, most of my communication, so when I'm teaching and speaking with the students or writing, I don't think, who am I communicating with, right? I feel like my personal political views are somehow relevant to what I'm doing, but like in some way they shouldn't be a part of my research. Like my political affiliation is not a secret in the sense that you can look it up, right? 
like people's party registration. You know, I'm a, um, I vote in the primary election. So like you can, you could probably, you could look up my party affiliation because it's public information because I'm not an independent, but like, it shouldn't matter. I'm not really in the persuasion business, but even if I were like, it's funny. I mean, I think that people who, let's say that in academia, people who have conservative views can feel very comfortable to be in the persuasion business. I'm not talking about people who like want to deny that Biden won the election or things like that. But just like, let's say there are political scientists or social scientists who are conservative. They're in the right half of the political spectrum. I think it's an easy answer for them, which is they can persuade their academic colleagues who are mostly liberal to just be a little bit more moderate. But on the other hand, the academics who are the vast majority who are on the left half of the political spectrum, who are on the center left, they can't, there's no way for them to persuade in the usual audience. So it's kind of funny because sometimes you'll see some loud complaints by academic conservatives that they're outnumbered and they don't have a voice. But I feel like if you're an academic conservative, your job is easier. If you have an unpopular position in your group, the same with me, like not about politics, but if I have a view about statistics, that's a minority take. Or if I have a view about like academia that most academics don't like to hear, it's kind of easy for me. Like I can complain, but like I feel like all I have to do is move the needle a little bit and I've succeeded. But what is like somebody, let's say like you doing a podcast like this, being on the progressive side, other people are going to hear it. You're, you're not trying to persuade somebody because there aren't a lot of conservatives. I mean, there aren't going to be a lot of conservatives maybe listening to your podcast. There are going to be some, but those who are, are going to be listening to it because they want to hear about the, the methods. They're not going to be listening to it because they think you're going to convince them I'm throwing it back to you, I guess. I don't, I don't know that there's a, not sure what their role would, would be in that. You know, I've talked to professors like uh, Jeffrey Toulis at Texas, who said that he teaches differently now because he, you know, was much more concerned about the Republic and he wanted to be much more normative, I guess, in what he was conveying to his students. You don't seem to have that same view. I teach methods classes and also I teach mostly grad students at Columbia. They're very left wing, like, you know, pretty much uniformly. I mean, not, not everyone, but, but most of them are. So, they, so there's nothing to be done. There's no imperative. Well, to, I mean, yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah. if to the extent I'm sending them any messages, it's probably like a, a moderate message. <laughs> so, but it's not. They're outflanking you. But I don't know that, like, they're they're not coming to me from that for that, right? So yeah, it's not like I have, it's not like whatever. I have a bunch of receptive eighteen year olds, and I have this like moral dilemma, like should I scare the hell out of them, or is that not my job, or whatever? I mean, these are people who are coming to me. Like, fortunately for me, I don't have to kind of wrestle with ethical questions. I do send, obviously, a lot of normative research methods issues. So although it's not about the fate of the republic, but I will have very strong views about statistical methods. Of course, I do try to make it very clear where I'm coming from. So when I have a strong view, like here's a statistical method that I don't use, I try to be very careful to say, well, I think this is why it's being used. So I think that would be similar in, in politics. But yeah, I'm not really an opinion leader in in that sense. I probably every once in a while there'll be a marginal thing. Like there's enough people who trust me that if a study comes out and I say, well, this seems reasonable to me, or I say it doesn't, then people on all sides of the political spectrum will listen to me. So there's like that, but it hasn't been I guess the closest to any of this would be I remember a few months ago some political scientists I knew did a paper which is pretty much confirming what every political scientist believes that more moderate candidates do better in elections. But I think it was something that implied that maybe Bernie Sanders was not such a powerful vote getter as people thought. And it got a bit of pushback. A lot of people didn't like to hear the message, but within political science, this was not controversial at all. So these political scientists who I'm sure were personally liberal 
they might have even liked Bernie Sanders as a candidate, but they were sending this kind of message. But I guess probably a lot more of that now would be on the other side. It would have to do with conservatives having to accept that Biden actually won the election and, and things like that. Andrew, is there a question that I haven't asked that I should have, or that would be something you'd like to answer? Oh, not that I can think of. Okay. Well, it's uh, very enjoyable and honor to talk to you. Anything else you'd like to say? Uh, I don't think so, but thanks for giving me the opportunity <laughs> to, to blather on for an hour. It's always good. Well, I wouldn't call it blathering myself, okay. but... okay. That was Andrew Gelman. He's at Columbia.edu. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.